you have your Bible, open up to the book of Philemon. <laughs> They're excited to see him back there. We've spent the uh, last couple of months learning about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in Ephesians and what that means for us as believers and being a part of this new humanity that God has created through his son, Jesus Christ. And I thought it only appropriate now to turn this morning and look at a direct application of everything we have learned in Ephesians. Now, Philemon is a book of application. That, that is the, the primary focus of Paul's shortest letter. It's, it's just all application. And this is the only letter. You, you may be like, well, Dale, why do you say this is only application. Well, this is the only letter in which Paul doesn't mention Jesus' death, burial, or resurrection. There's no gospel message here. What he is doing, though, is acting out the gospel. Paul is showing us that this is what it would look like if you believe the gospel. Here's how you should act. Here we'll see the implication of the good news that we learned about in Ephesians. Jesus' family is, is a new humanity, as he calls it in Colossians. And in this new humanity, we are all equal partners who share together in God's grace. And Paul is trying to confront a brother in Christ to change his behavior to be more in line with God's new humanity. And so I want to follow Paul's lead here. And, and I, I really just want to look at his method of application because I think it's very important to us, members of this new humanity, this God's family, right? That the point of Ephesians was that we were to live in unity. But there are times in which you have to confront your brother or sister in Christ because they're not living in that new reality. So how do we do that? What's the best way to go about it? Well, thankfully, Paul penned these short verses, this, this very short book, to help us to see a method for which we should approach our brothers and sisters in Christ when they are not living up to this new standard we are called to live by. So I want to look at Paul's method in his application of living in this new humanity this morning. And I want to look at three elements that we find in this letter that, that help us to see Paul's method. Because I believe this is, again, important for us to live in unity. We, we are going to have to do this at some point in our walk with Jesus and in our local body there are times in which we have to confront one another. So how do we do that? I want to break this down, if you're taking notes, basically into three sections. First is verses 1 through 7. And you're going to see here Paul persuading gracefully. Persuading gracefully. And then second, in verses 8 through 11, he makes his request irresistible. 
The way he presents it, the way he puts it out, you just can't resist. And then finally, in verses 12 through 25, we're going to see that repentance should then be followed by grace. So let's start with just a quick little background about this book just to help you understand the main characters and why Paul wrote this book. First off, Paul refers to himself in verse 1 as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now Paul is, again at this time, being held in a Roman prison. Um, And obviously, it's on his mind that, hey, I'm in prison, (laughs) right? Like, it's hard for him to... Overlook that, because that's his current state of reality. And it was on his mind, even though the conditions weren't optimal. Prisons in those days are not like the prisons we have nowadays. Uh, You were not provided three square meals. It was up to friends and family to bring you sustenance, or otherwise you just died in prison, literally, of hunger. Because they didn't care. You were a prisoner. You had no rights. So Paul's friends and fellow workers in the gospel had been caring for him. But despite Paul's state, as dire as it is, what do we find Paul doing? Paul is more concerned about having to to stand trial before Nero and answer to these trumped-up charges against him. Now we know in Philippians 1 that he wanted to be sure that he presented the gospel of Jesus in a favorable light. So even though Paul is in prison, his mind is not on himself, it's on Nero. Like, I'm going to get to stand before. This is a great opportunity for me. An opportunity for me to present the gospel. Right? Not to defend my life, not to try to ask for a pardon, but I'm going to get a chance in the court of the leaders at this time to share the gospel. And I want to make sure I do that in the best possible light. And yet with all that facing him, his imprisonment, his his coming trial, being locked up in a cell, again we find Paul thinking of others. Now let me just stop here for a moment. How many of us would be so selfless to stop what we're doing, to write a letter, and offer to pay the debts of a runaway slave. I mean, that, that's what we find Paul doing. Paul is so other-centered. That's, that's convicting, honestly. Many of us have it far better than Paul in yet we still struggle to think of anything other than ourselves. So that's Paul. Onesimus is a a runaway slave that has come to Paul for help. No doubt he had met Paul when Paul was on his missionary journeys and he had been preaching. And Paul would have stayed um, with his his master, Philemon. And we're never told exactly uh, what he did But there's some indication that something serious happened between the two of them, uh, between Onesimus and Philemon. It could be that he stole um, from Philemon before running away. 
That could be what Paul is referring to as far as the debts that he's going to repay. But it also could just be the fact that as a slave in that time, and again, just a quick reminder for those who weren't with us for that message in Ephesians, it's not like what most Americans think of as slavery. Most people in the Roman Empire were working off a debt. In other words, they had got themselves into a debt, and the only way they saw to get out of it was to go to a rich person and say, I will come and work for you, and while I am working for you, take that money to pay off my debt. Right? And so Paul may be saying that in this time that he's run away, he could have been working off his debt, but he hasn't, and Paul's saying, look, I'll pay for that. We do know that something happened to cause this rift to where he felt like he just couldn't go back. So who is Philemon? Well, Paul tells us that in verse 19 that he's a convert of the Apostle Paul. Paul had preached the gospel to him and he had received the gospel and came to life in him. We know he's known for his hospitality, which was incredibly important in this time. This was a, a huge cultural thing to do. We see that in verses 5 through 7. Paul considered him a, a co-worker in verse 1. The church at Colossus met in his home, so he, he was the host of the, the local church there in Colossa, Colossae. <laughs> and we know that he owned slaves, obviously. Both of these indicates that he was probably a wealthy man, that he had a house large enough to host the church and that he was rich enough to be able to pay off the debts of these uh, servants and slaves. Paul had remained close to him, and this letter we see just a very warm and friendly spirit as Paul writes to him. So those are the kind of three main characters we see in this letter. So let's look at these, let's look at Paul's method for convincing Philemon to change his behavior. First, I said in verse 1 through 7, we're going to see Paul persuading gracefully. Notice in verse 1, Paul includes Timothy as a co-writer of the letter to Philemon. He calls Timothy our brother. Paul thought of the entire church of Christ as a great family, right? The family of God, instituted because of Jesus Christ. And Paul saw it was his task to promote brotherly love amongst not only individuals, but other churches, right? Paul would often have a, an offering that he was taking up from one church to help another church. Paul was trying to always promote this brotherly love between the body of Christ. So even the very terms that he is using is, is intended to emphasize a point. Timothy was a brother in Christ, it was important, therefore, to remind Philemon of that fact. By emphasizing brotherhood, all those whom God has called, Paul was kind of subtly laying a foundation for what he wanted to request of Philemon. The forgiveness and manumission of Onesimus. And again, if you weren't here when we preached that sermon on slavery, manumission was a term used to describe the day that a slave was made free. This was the day that every slave looked forward to when all of their debts were paid and they were back to being a free man. And that's what Paul wants for Onesimus. The great family of faith consisted of 
brothers and sisters, Paul wanted Philemon to be reminded of that fact. And we'll see it will not be long before Paul will also be referring to Onesimus as your brother. In verse 16, it's important for us when we are called to correct someone to both remind ourselves that we are correcting a brother and to first remind the person that we see them as a brother before confronting them. Notice the second thing Paul does in verse 2. This letter is not written to Philemon alone, is it? Aphia, Archippus, and the entire church are addressed as fellow recipients of the letter. Why do you think that is? Presumably because Paul had something very difficult to ask of Philemon. And so Paul is enlisting everyone around him. Anyone that has any kind of influence in Philemon's life to help him make the right decision. Paul wants to get everybody on side. He enlists his wife, Aphia, and either his son or a close friend, Archippus, and then the entire church that was meeting in his home. Again, we, we should learn from Paul here and his methods here by, by seeking to enlist others to, 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 to help, to come alongside our brothers and sisters, to encourage them and to help them change. Again, we, we are part of a family. This, this Christianity is not an individual sport. It is a team sport. Right? And Paul realizes that. And he's like, if this, this is a big thing I'm asking. And if, if it's going to happen, we got to get out the whole team on board here, right? So he wants this letter read to everybody, not just to Philemon, right? And Philemon can be like, <laughs> nope. <laughs> no, he, he wants his wife to know. Because you know them wives. <laughs> They'll keep asking, what you going to do about that? What you going to do about that? His friends, the church, Right? We would be wise to do the same thing when we are seeking to confront our brother and sister in Christ. Remembering, A, that they are our brother or sister in Christ. And treat them with the appropriate care before confronting them. Again, this is not a letter from one person to another. This is, in Paul's mind, it is a family matter, both literally and spiritually. Third, Paul wishes them grace and peace from God the Father. Notice again here, he, he's driving home his point of being a family of faith is, allude, is, is alluded to God the Father, right? We're brothers and sisters, and don't forget Dad, right? And the Lord Christ. Paul desires Philemon to, to have these two qualities, grace and peace, and we talked about these Last week at the end of Ephesians, Paul desires him to have these things. Why? Because every person needs these two things. We, we need grace and peace. It doesn't matter who you meet on the street, they need those two things. According to Paul, these two things may be obtained from God. And he wishes for Philemon and his family the, the, the wish that he has for them to have grace and peace was not just in vain. 
And this should encourage us this morning because these things are possible to obtain. We can receive grace and peace from God. And Paul wants Philemon to know that because he's going to need it. So the first three verses really set the tone. They lay a foundation. And they're just implying things to come. Now, the fact that Paul spends three verses out of 25 shows us the importance of approaching an issue carefully. This is, I think, one of the biggest reasons that confrontation goes wrong in the body of Christ. Someone will come to me and they're like, about, about an issue with a brother, and, and I'll encourage them, hey, first go to them. That's what the Bible says to do. Go to them and see if you can be reconciled with your brother and sister in Christ. But then they'll come back to me and they'll go, eh, it didn't go so well. Normally because they don't take the time to set the tone and lay a foundation of brotherly love. They're just going to be the sin police and saying, hey, you're doing this wrong. Instead of approaching a brother and sister in Christ out of brotherly love and concern for that person. Genuine concern. Now, following the words of greeting comes the thanksgiving. Four more verses before Paul even gets to his request. Together with these three verses devoted to the greeting, these four make up a total of seven preparatory verses. Like He's trying to set this up. That's nearly a third of the number of verses in this whole letter. Paul, with great care, is showing us how important it is to prepare people for the hard choices that they need to make. No wonder Paul was concerned to enlist others to help him. Now let's look at what Paul is thankful for. He's thankful for Philemon's love and faithfulness toward the Lord Jesus. So he doesn't just jump into, you were wrong. Or you are wrong. No, instead, he points out what Philemon is doing right. Paul is thankful that God has put it into the heart of Philemon to show love and faithfulness toward God, but also all the saints. Again, in those days when Christians traveled, there wasn't a super eight in every town. They, they relied on brothers and sisters of Christ to host them while they visited. It's one of the favorite things I love to do when I'm traveling. Seeing old church members or old pastor friends of mine, and if I'm going through an area and their house is even remotely on the way, I'll reach out and call and say, hey, can I spend the night with you? Can we have a meal together and catch up? But, but in this time, it was even more important. And and there was this custom that they had of of sending one forward on his journey. And this is kind of an extreme example of what we call paying it forward, right? You ever ever had that experience? You're in the line getting yourself a drink or something, and the lady's like, oh, the person in front of you paid paid it forward. They they paid for your drink as well or your food. This is like an extreme version of that because it meant not only hosting the person in your house and providing for their needs food-wise and all that, But it also meant providing funds and food to sustain the person until they could get to their next stop. And that's what this brother in Christ is so good at. He's so good at hosting and caring for the saints. Paul knows this because Paul's experienced it. 
Paul's also thankful for how he shared the gospel with others. Notice in verse 6 when Paul says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing. He's, he's praying for the, the, the gospel sharing that Philemon is doing, that, that God will come alongside with him and make it even more effective. Of course, one of the ways in which Paul Philemon and those around him could more fully appreciate the good things they have in Christ would be for him to release Onesimus from his obligations and free him from slavery. Paul, once more, is plowing the ground and, and readying it for planting of that seed. Notice again in verse 7, Paul uses the term brother, this time of Philemon. He wants to again emphasize that family relationship Philemon bears to all Christians, including now Onesimus. So in verses 1 through 7, it's, it's kind of like Paul's long wind-up, right? Now here comes the pitch in verses 8 through 11. And we see Paul's second method. Paul makes his request irresistible. Paul reminds Philemon that he has apostolic authority to order Philemon to do as he wishes. But he will not use that authority. This is an important point. Why doesn't Paul just order him to comply? He could. I think it's because, of, as he's already said in verses 4 through 7, he knows this man. He has seen the goodness that God has wrought in the heart of Philemon in relation to many others and to himself. And he is convinced, therefore, that he would free Onesimus on appeal. It's always better for our brother or sister to do something on their own as, as a, re, a result of an appeal rather than an order. When we go to confront our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and they're struggling with some sin or, or not living out the gospel in, in this new humanity, I promise you it will be more lasting and more powerful if they make that decision on their own versus you just telling them to do it. You can tell them and they may change their behavior but they didn't change their heart. And Paul wants that deeper commitment of change. Paul's appeal is strong, and he has prepared Philemon for it. However, he doesn't just simply bring it out of, out of the blue. But notice what he says, to do what is required. First, Paul refers to releasing Onesimus as required. I told you in Ephesians, this new humanity that Jesus Christ is bringing into the world is a radically different community than anything the world had ever seen. This is even more radical than what Paul said to the Ephesians. This is required. In other words, it's the proper thing for you to do. He had no doubt that this is what God himself wanted. That's why it was required. Paul was not talking about something that seemed right to society or to himself alone. 
No, this is what God wanted. And Paul doesn't hesitate to add his own personal appeal, and an emotional one at that, out of his love for Philemon. He, he appeals rather than orders. And it's not just anyone asking for the favor, is it? This is the Apostle Paul. This is a man who is imprisoned for his faith. That's faithfulness. <laughs> and, and even in that imprisonment, he's still preaching the gospel every chance he gets. Those are appeals that are not only strong, but very difficult to reject. And Paul doesn't hesitate to draw on his own personal relationship to Philemon as a basis for granting his request. What is his appeal? Notice at this point, it's not even fully stated. We, we know that it has to do with Onesimus. That much is clear. But not just with Onesimus, with a new Onesimus. An, an Onesimus that has come to faith in Jesus Christ. Right? The, the, the old Onesimus had been buried with him in baptism. And this is a new Onesimus. Rise to walk in newness of life. He calls him my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Again, notice the family language that he's using. It's like every chance he gets, he's just like, oh yeah, don't forget, we're family, we're family, we're brothers and sisters, don't forget that. This happened at some point because Onesimus had run away, he went to Rome, and perhaps he got there and he was desperate for help, and he was like, hey, I know Paul's here, he's in prison, but I'm going to go talk to him. Paul surely was well known to him if he was a servant in the house of Philemon, he would have met him multiple times as Paul would have been there preaching. And perhaps Paul had even taken the time on those occasions to share the gospel with Onesimus. But now, their contact in prison led Onesimus to his spiritual birth. Paul now thinks of him as a spiritual child. This new Onesimus, Paul says, is useful. Which obviously is a play on words because... The name Onesimus literally means useful. Before he was a thieving runaway, but now he's become a Christian. And along with his conversion, he's a newly useful person. One Paul claims is both useful to himself and to Philemon. Note how Paul includes himself in the statement as the first hint of what he's about to ask. Not only Onesimus' freedom, but his continued service to Paul. In verses 12 through 14, the full request finally comes forth. Paul's painstakingly worked up to this climactic request. But with such an elegant preparation, how can Philemon resist his irresistible request? Now that Paul has made his request, let's look at what he does next in verses 12 through 25. Here we will see that repentance should follow, should be followed by grace. First, Paul is careful to follow the, the lawful re requirement of a Roman citizen in regard to Onesimus. Right? Verse 12, he is sending him back. 
Paul's desire is to see Onesimus freed. And he most likely detests slavery as an institution because we are, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We shouldn't be in a position of ownership of another person. Nevertheless, Paul is not about to break the law, the Roman law, for Onesimus. Now, there are Christians today that are fed up with what they see as the encroaching tyranny by the government, who are advocating various violations of the law. And that's really a sad commentary on their exegesis of Scripture. Christians with the apostles may say we must obey God rather than men only when the state clearly requires them to break a plain commandment of God. God gave authority to the home, to the church, and to the state. And that authority must be fully respected by Christians. We see Paul doing that. Even though it's wrongly used in many cases. It's only when the Christian himself is required by the state to sin that he must protest and stop. He recognizes that it is the authority of God in each of these areas that requires submission. But he sees that authority as limited, not absolute. So like the three Hebrew officials in Babylon... We refuse to obey when we're asked to bow down to some purely human God. It's not a matter of how poorly the state uses our tax money that triggers our disobedience. The state and those in power will have to one day answer for all of that. It's always a demand that a Christian engage in an activity that is a sin that should trigger our disobedience to the state. So Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon, probably bearing this very letter. Now, it would be hard for Onesimus to return. But that was the part of the evidence of the validity of his conversion and repentance. His return to face Philemon would be the reason for him to see the fruit that was worthy of repentance. But notice Paul's language and how it's calculated to touch Philemon's soul. Verse 12, to send back Onesimus is like tearing his own heart out and sending it. Paul explains that Onesimus has been such a help to him in prison that that he would like to have kept him there and to let him continue to serve and help him. What Philemon couldn't do for Paul, Onesimus could do on his behalf. But Paul can't presume Philemon would be okay with him staying and serving because that would go against the Roman law. Verse 14, so Philemon must tell Paul that he wanted to free Onesimus and then send him back to Rome to work with him in the gospel there in Rome. Paul didn't want to tell Philemon because if it had been done, it would have been done out of necessity and not voluntarily. Verse 14 says that your goodness might be by compulsion, might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. We should again learn from Paul here. It is better to take a little extra time to achieve that, to achieve what we know could be achieved simply by commanding it, in order to allow our brothers and sisters to come and make that decision themselves. 
But that requires patience. Lots of patience sometimes. And as I often remind people, we are to be a people that are long-suffering. It's a compound word. Long-suffering. Right? That's what patience is like sometimes. But when he does, when he, not, not only does he do so voluntarily, as Paul indicates, but, but having made his own decision in the right way, he will be strengthened by it. Him coming and making this decision will help and grow his faith versus just being ordered to do something. And again, if, that's, if we want the best for our brothers and sisters in Christ, we should want them too to be strengthened by this decision that they need to make. Notice in verse 15, Paul says something that's pretty remarkable. Commenting on the providential working of God, he suggests this. Verse 15, perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. In a nice comparison, he, he's speaking of the evil behavior of Onesimus as temporary or for a while, only in God's providence to bring about a permanent relationship on a, a wholly higher level. Not that of slave to master, but brother to dear brother. Again, here's that term again. But what's remarkable in that? Well, the remarkable thing is that the apostle himself speaks of the providence of God in the way that he did. How often do we hear careless Christians speaking the opposite? They don't talk in terms of conjecture, uh, of conjecture or suggestion, right? using words like perhaps, but as if they have had direct revelation about God's providential workings. I know this is what God wants me to do. Perhaps, Paul would say. How do they know? We're not talking about decisions based on explicit biblical principles here, right? Thou shalt not steal. Okay, we, we know that, right? But on matters that require judgments based on the application of general principles to specific everyday affairs. Even Paul, who had seen God at work, many times bringing permanent good out of temporary evil, will not go that far. He says, perhaps. Because even an apostle, even as an apostle who from time to time did receive direct revelation from God, he would not affirm with absolute certainty that God was doing what God was doing prior to the fact itself. If Paul doesn't, neither should we. Onesimus, Paul assures Philemon, has become his dear brother. And he's sure that because of Philemon's relationship to Onesimus, his conversion would be even more precious to Philemon. Verse 16. This new relationship that, that Onesimus now has to Philemon will be evident both in physical and in spiritual ways. So since these things are true, Paul concludes, if you count me as a partner in the work of the Lord, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. In other words, if Onesimus has now meant so much to Paul, 
There was every reason to receive him as a joint partner in the work of the Lord. Paul has covered all the bases, right? He has thought through what he was going to say before he says it. And we, like Paul, need to take more time and to be sure that we do the same. Paul's pressure on his friend is relentless, yet it's gracious. It's tactful. But speaking of covering all the bases, in verse 18, Paul remembers one other item he wants to be sure to mention. If Onesimus caused financial loss to Philemon in some way, Paul wants him to know that he will stand by him. You can charge that to my account, Paul says. And there are times, listen folks, when you are trying to help brothers and sisters in Christ, that you are going to have to reach into your wallet and give your brother or sister money so that he can feed his family while also encouraging him to find a job. <laughs> right? Now you may be asking, how do I know when I should and when I shouldn't do that? It's almost always wise to err on the side of generosity. This statement by Paul not only assured Philemon, it also must have assured Onesimus of the genuineness of the apostles' love and backing. Right? Think, think about you're in Onesimus' place and you're thinking about that debt that needs to be paid. And Paul's saying, I'll take care of that. That really shows the love that Paul had for him and encouraged him to go and do the right thing. And then Paul adds one more appeal. I'm not making it a point of fact, Philemon, but you owe your own salvation to me. <laughs> right? He's bringing it up, but it's not the trump card that he's playing, right? Both Onesimus and you are my converts. You both have the same spiritual father in the Lord. And perhaps this was the most powerful appeal of all that Paul saved for the end as a closer. And then comes the outright request. Again, using the term brother. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. It is the cry of one in need. And to do it for Christ's sake in verse 20. Paul now indicates that all of his pleading and appealing is really something that he is telling Philemon to do. And he tells him that I am confident in your obedience. He's confident that Philemon will take his suggestions. I know you will, Paul says. And treat them with the respect you would if I had given you a command. I'm confident that you will do what I have requested and even more. There's no hesitancy on Paul, on the part of Paul, to make a huge request of God's people in the work of the Lord. Just read through his letters. He's constantly making huge requests of us. But what he requests for himself is, of course, not really even for him. It's to enable him to carry on the work of evangelism. It's to further 
the honor and glory of Christ. Knowing Paul, Philemon would take all he said in that light. For a man like Paul, a brother in Christ like Philemon, would probably do almost anything. Of that, Paul was sure. We see in verse 21. Now let me close this morning by asking you a question. When you approach a brother and sister in Christ about an area in their life that they need to change, does your brother and sister see a person of character that is selfless, approaching them in grace and peace? If not, perhaps this is why some of you have had negative experiences when confronting others. Jesus reminds us to take the log out of our own eye before taking the speck out of our brother's eye. When we do that, we will know just how painful that process is. So that when we go to our brothers, we will go much gentler, much more graciously, and patiently to help our brother through the same painful process that we have already gone through. Jesus wants us to confront one another. Jesus wants us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. But he wants us to do it in grace and peace. And Paul has laid out a beautiful methodology in the book of Philemon of how and what that looks like in the lives of this new humanity, this new family that God is calling us into. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would convict us, Lord. Help us to see how maybe in the past we have approached our brothers and sisters in Christ in ways that were not gracious, that were not peaceful, Lord. For the times in which we have been impatient with our brothers and sisters in Christ because they didn't change on our timetable when we thought they should. And Father, convict us if we have just given up on those brothers and sisters in Christ because of our own selfishness. And Lord, I pray that you, through our confession and repentance, Lord, would allow us to be selfless. To be able to confront our brothers and sisters in love and grace and mercy. And Father, that you would give us the patience and that we would ultimately trust you to do the work that only you can do in their hearts. But Lord, that we would stand by them until that change occurs. Patiently, relentlessly, like Paul, calling them back into the new life, the new humanity that you have created. Father, we thank you 
that this is also the way you deal with us. Paul is just modeling what he learned from Jesus. Father, help us to be more like Jesus in our interactions with one another. I ask all these things in Jesus' precious name.